Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Nancy Giordano. Is that right? Yep, perfect. <laughs> perfect. You are the author of Leadering, uh, which has just reached bestseller status on Amazon just out, right? Um, and the founder of Femme Futurist Leadering, the ways visionary leaders play bigger. Wake, wonder, navigate, connect, contribute, be audacious and thrive. That's the book. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm sorry that my dog, if you can hear that, uh, you know, this is... The, I could the hear that. That's fine. Apologies. He's just really I cool. You must have gotten an Amazon okay. delivery. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> the only reason he gets that excited is because if something yet has hit the front door. Right. Um, well, welcome to the dog as well. Maybe, maybe. Is it a he or a she? It's a he. And there's a he. daughter downstairs that should be taking care of it. So we'll hope that she does. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe he will make an appearance. Dog's welcome. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess the first question is, um, leadering. Do we need a new word that we have leading? What's, um, what's leadering? I, you know, got to spend a lot of time in the business world. I've done uh, inside organizations or consulting with organizations uh, and then also the tech community. And it's very exciting when you see what's on the horizon. You get to hang out with all the people who are designing the future, the technologists and the scientists and engineers and the entrepreneurs. And you can imagine what is just over the horizon. Um, but when we try and bring that back into the current world. There's a lot of resistance around it. We get pushed back and there's just somehow an ability, an inability to absorb and respond to new information. And I kept trying to figure out why, like, why, why, why? Um, and I finally just sort of put it around this uh, concept that we had a way of leading, a way that we were taught that leadership was supposed to go, uh, that is getting in the way. And so there's a big mindset shift that needs to happen. So when I think about leadership, it's a noun and it's static and hierarchical and closed and very intentionally designed to root out variability to ensure that nothing kind of rocks the boat so we can be as efficient as possible to consistently scale and grow, right? Month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, like that was the mandate. It was very clear and it worked really well. In the 20th century industrial world, we grew beautiful brands all over the world. We lifted people out of poverty. I'd argue it was a very uh, successful uh, approach back in the day. But we're heading now into a world that is so much more dynamic. There's so much more change. It's radically shifting from a technological and cultural perspective. And so that doesn't work anymore. And when you try and bring that mindset into this world, we keep getting stuck. Um, and it's either we're too slow to respond or we actually are making really dangerous decisions, which is what I'm actually more worried about. So when I think about it, we're moving from a noun to a verb. We want to be in a place of constant leadering, right? We're sensing, responding in real time. It's dynamic and it's caring and it's adaptive and it's inclusive. And it's designed to support constant innovation and experimentation for long-term sustainable value. So we're sort of flipping it, right? Instead of long R&D for short-term profitability, we're going to have lots of experiments and constant innovation and iteration for long-term sustainable value. It just feels like that heads us into a much safer um, more, you know, that's the future I want to build. That's the future I want to live in. Right, right, right. Okay. And you, you mentioned there right at the start that there's something about processing information, you know, our ability to process information. Do you see that that's key to this new, yeah, well, we, do we call it a new style of leading? Is that what you, Right. No, I think that leadering is actually about building ecosystems of support. So you aren't the person who has to process all that. I think we're going to be sharing and distributing some of that responsibility across bigger groups. Right. Because okay. this idea of being a guru or someone asked me how we're going to be able to master things or how who's going to be in control. And these are all words that are industrial era concepts and language that actually don't hold up in a world in which we're going to have to be much more interdependent and recognize that you might know a lot about this. And I know a lot about that, but none of us knows everything at this moment. There's so much. There's a, a stat. I don't know whoever does the math on these. The 90 percent of the world's information has been produced in the last two years. It's impossible to know everything or enough or to really feel comfortable that we are like, you know, um, solid in our understanding before we can go do something. I talk a lot about the challenge right now is learning and leading simultaneously. Right. right. Learning and leading. So you think that's at the core of this leadering idea? That well, it's I think at the core of it is putting humans at the center, which is part of why I love being in, in this conversation with you, because it really is about reorienting away from thinking that the humans are sort of on the side of it, whether they're employees or community stakeholders or um, somehow, you know, recipients of this to putting it smack dab in the middle and understanding how we build for people and for society in a way, again, that has long-term value. Uh, I think it's about um, being much more curious about things as opposed to just having to know things. It's about, again, to your point, being in a process of learning, but it's also in a process of connecting. Uh, we've been doing a series of interviews for this book or a series of like 30-minute sessions that introduce each chapter of the book. And yesterday was all about being connected versus alone. 
And what does that mean? And the connection is on all levels, right? It's with ourselves, it's with our teams, it's with society, it's with the environment and nature. Like it's really scoping out what we mean about being connected because we can no longer think about this as sort of an individualist game or that we're kind of separated from one another. And if you look at the most resilient structures that will be built into the future, they mimic nature, which is again, this shared uh, interdependence. Uh, but it's also, uh, again, recognizing our responsibility now as leaders. We're no longer just professionals. We're actually humans. I talk a lot about that. And we're members of society. We've got these three lenses that we need to look through this. And so as a member of society, what is our responsibility and our opportunity? Right. Okay. And if we, okay, so if, but so we've got this responsibility, right? And to ourselves, to, 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 to you know, to, to ourselves as, as, as individuals, as human beings, our sort of professional responsibilities, and then there's this broader um, responsibility to society uh, as as leaders. But I suppose um, what is and is that one of the shifts? Then you know that when we think about leadering, it's that we're adopting different lenses, right? But maybe traditionally, yeah. when we think about the business, let's say the business leader, it was our accountability to the organisation or to the shareholder, yeah, or to the shareholder specifically, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's just it, right? So I think that there's just a real reframing of all this. The way, um, so there's a couple of different ways so that we can do those sort of the metaphors, right? One is that we used to think that there was a playbook and that if we just followed this way of doing things again consistently, that we would be able to scale and grow infinitely and that there was no um, externalities that we needed to be responsible for. We could just continue to use as many resources as we want, grab as much attention as we want, make sure that we're delivering that consistent ROI, right? And instead, I would argue now we're moving into a land of practices, you no longer have a playbook. There is no like how to do AI on Monday and here are the five easy steps to being able to transform your organization. Like it just is much more complex than that and it will take more learning than that. And so how do you develop a set of practices? So that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is we used to have a map, right? We have a well-worn map. We knew exactly what we were supposed to go do. And now we actually are moving to a new terrain that we need to be able to learn to navigate with a compass and a North Star. So if you have right. a compass, right, then you can go into new rain, terrain and, and know not only that you'll be safe, but that you can act. Because that's one of the things. It's not just about now taking a new cartography and what is the new land and being able to create the new map. It is constantly shifting and changing, right? There are stats that say that the world will change more in the next 50 years than it has in the last 300. Or it'll change more in the next 10 years than it has in the last 100. And whatever those numbers are, you know, what, they're, they're staggering. When you think about exponential technologies and the impact that they will have as they continue to evolve and converge, it's pretty staggering. So how do we prepare for that? You can't, but you can learn to be more prepared. You can learn how to respond to that with more confidence so you don't shut down. So what we're seeing is everyone gets so afraid that they shut down. So that becomes a, you know, another way of, of thinking about that. And then the last is, yeah, is that we recognize that we have an infinite number of resources on this planet. Externalities are really important that we take care of environmentally, ecologically, socially, physically, emotionally, um, and that we need to steward this with greater care. Right, right. And is that is that then speaking to this wake idea, waking up? Yeah. Is that sort of waking up to this, you know, this more complex way of viewing the world? The, yeah. yeah, I think it's two things, right? It's one, it's recognizing that the playbook is dead and that you just cannot keep trying to push that same machine into this world. You know, again, you'll either lose, and then there's lots of stories in there about people who kept trying to do it the old way and then, you know, didn't make it through the gauntlet. Uh, but I also just think it's dangerous. We will have such potent ability to impact others with through these technologies that we have to think about doing it through a more caring and a more long-term lens. It cannot just be for trying to extract as much uh, you know, short-term uh, value as we possibly can. Uh, and for a small number of people, it needs to be distributed. The way I talk about it too is that we're leaving the industrial era and we're heading into the productivity era. So if you can imagine, I can 3D print a house now for $7,000. You know, the average size house that, that same size costs $156,000 currently in US dollars to build from $156,000 to $7,000, right? We can do vertical farming, which is 10 times, you know, you know more efficient, uses 90% less water and uh, you know, four times as a, a impactful in terms of the land use, et cetera. Um, you start to imagine that the cost of food comes down. You think about the fact that solar and wind costs are now, you know, lower than they are for traditional fossil fuels and gas. So we're just heading into a world where we're going to be able to be so much more productive. And then the question becomes, how do you distribute that productivity in a more fair way? Because I think that, you know, he or she who holds the algorithm is going to have a tremendous amount of uh, both power and value in the future. And so, and unfortunately, it's very few she's, which is part of the reason we started the Fem Future Society. Right. Um, but, uh, just as a, a stat 
uh, on the side of the 560 companies that have IPO'd in the United States in the last, I don't know how many years, like three or four years, only three were founded by women. Right. Right. So this is why we need to like, just think about all of these things around diversity and inclusion and belonging and accessibility and all those things that become more important. So to your point, the regional thing, there are new externalities that we're paying attention to that we need to drive a different business model toward. So that's part of why waking up is waking up to seeing like, what is it that we have done? And are we okay with that? Right. As we see so many breakdowns around us, do we think that that's a good idea? And it's waking up to the fact that technology is going to um, change the game quite radically. So we have pressures on us uh, that we can see as diminishing or hurting, or you can say, wow, there's a huge opportunity to go build business strength. But we say is actually, if you look at that from the other direction, there's tremendous opportunities. You can wake up to what is available to you now that may not have been available before. Right. Yeah. And that point about the, 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 who owns the data, who owns the algorithm is, is now you know, key. And you also include some stats in the book about you know, rising inequality. Um, so what are your, I suppose, sources for hope that that trajectory is going to change anytime soon? Uh, because I do see the things on the horizon that I think are going to challenge some of those assumptions. I think that there, there are ways, I mean, part of the fact that we're even thinking about stakeholder capitalism is a good thing now. We're starting to think about things in a more systemic way and understanding how this connects to this. And I mean, I've heard not just like, you know, foreign, you know, technologists talk about that. I've seen like, you know, what we consider to be very, you know, classic, uh, Texas business thinkers, you know, with a big drawl talking about systemic thinking. And so when you can see that, you see that, okay, there's some change on the horizon. People are starting to wake up and understand that there's a connection between these things and that caring economics is actually a very, uh, a more lucrative way of looking at this, right? There's a lot of value that's being left on the table right now because we're not taking good care of things. And, and what we're seeing is the destructive results of an old way of thinking that are expensive. So if we can actually shift, it actually creates there's an incentive to go that direction, which I think is uh, in, in, uh, encouraging. Um, but I think, you know, when I start to look at what's really on the horizon, there's a friends of mine who are really trying to restructure the Internet completely. That would make it so that we are uh, able to really usher in a peer to peer world in which we're able to uh, create and exchange value in uh, very different ways. So I think when we look at current models, it looks scary. When you imagine the disintegration of current models, it's super frightening for people. Um, when I think about this integration of current models, I get very excited because I think that there's a whole another way of being able to design all this that will hold us better. So, right. So, are you, specific, are you alluding to the, the Bitcoin style technologies when you talk uh, about it's beyond that? Internet? There's one called Holochain that I um, am championing, and it's getting a lot of airtime these days, but it's built very, very differently than blockchain. Um, and it has a, a currency called Holo Fuel that is attached to it. But it's much more about it's about supporting the flow of goods and services. And it's asset backed and it's agent centric, and it just has a completely different configuration, different ethos that's built within. It. It's very nascent, uh, but it's the kind of thing that could radically change the way that all of this works. And so I get excited about that. I think artificial intelligence is going to radically change the way all of this works. Right? It's going to uh, challenge again the way that we think that we know how things work. It's going to become not just uh, an ally in giving us new insight, it actually will become prescriptive. And what would that feel like when an algorithm is telling you what to eat or how long to sleep or uh, you know how to deploy some of your resources inside an organization? It's going to be really odd. And yet, you know, I do think that that is where we are headed. So the question will become, um, how prepared are we for that? And how do we make sure it works in our favor as opposed to against us and make sure it doesn't have bias built into it? It's based on really as solid thinking as we can put into it and we put yeah. some constraints around it so it doesn't go so far until we're sure that it's safe. And so uh, these are all new practices that we're going to have developed um, new understanding for new literacy with. Right. Okay. Well, it sounds like the two big ideas there, you started with the holochain and then you talked about, you know, prescriptive AI, but just to take the first one then. So what are the, you talked about agent centric, you know, just, just, just break that down a bit, you know, just to sort of, Dwell on yeah, that. Yeah, and again, you know, it's so funny because I think a lot about this. If you want to get into the technological rabbit hole about how they've actually built it, um, there's all kinds of data on it now and white papers and videos and all that kind of stuff. The way I look at it is if you're flipping the, uh, the internet inside out. So right now the internet is built around, there's an application. You all have to go to the center of the application. And we're sort of just people on the outside that continue to feed data to it. And we'd have no control over what it is that we're offering to that. And you flip it to the sense that actually the applications run on each one of our devices. It doesn't go through a centralized server or the centralized application, which means that there isn't somebody who is controlling the data or surveilling the data or selling the data. 
And then I can decide how much of it I want to make accessible or not accessible. I can turn that, you know, that tap off if I don't want you to have access to the data anymore. Like it's just, it's a complete reconfiguration of how we would interact with each other through the World Wide Web, which is, we call it the distributed web. And so it's, and I call it crypto coordination. It's through cryptography and through these other uh, mechanisms that we'll be able to coordinate in a much different level, which then is also really interesting to be added in the other layer. And this is why it's connected to me, certainly to AI and to other things that we will have machines that are talking to each other. We will have daily lights that's talking to each other. There will be these micro transactions uh, that are happening all the time and micro payments that are going to be happening all the time. Micro um, coordination, again, lack of a better word, right? So if you imagine that, if we take it all the way out here, I have a way of generating energy at my house because I've got solar panels. You've got a way of generating energy at your house. You've got a wind turbine. Somebody else down the street's got some other way of doing it. We can create our own grid and we can decide that it's with three of us. We can decide it's with 10 of us, a hundred of us, a million of us, like scale infinitely if you had the capacity to be able to do that. Mm. And somehow automatically, it's just making those decisions in terms of where the energy is being sourced. There's actually a company called Red Grid that's building a whole load chain right now that's creating the internet of energy. Um, and we could compensate each other that way for it. There's a way in which we've already decided on what that compensation structure is. It's not going through a centralized authority that's deciding what that all, um, uh, the, the, the structure of that should be. That's just right. one example. But no, but that's, that's a very, um, you know, that's an inspiring idea. And it relates a little bit to a conversation I had, uh, like did a book review of a, of a book called A Small is Beautiful by, um, a British German, uh, economist. And, he had this idea that the sort of, op, op, in some ways, the optimal humane economic system is founded on the fact that we, we, we have control over our own means of production at some level, right? We have, you know, it's, it's better to have a, a sort of a, multi, a multitude of small scale production units that are owned by the individual. Uh, and that is a more humane of organizing our sort of economic life. And it sounds to me like what you've just described has some echo of that, right? Um, this has an ability to enable that. I don't know that I fully, I know a lot of people who believe that and think that, and uh, it can go to all kinds of extremes as to what that looks like. I think that we will still be a global interconnected thing. I think I almost go like, there'll be this interesting tension where I think global borders, this is going to be really radical. And I'm sort of speaking super hypothetically. I don't have the research behind it, but I do think at some point global borders will become less and less relevant because we won't be able to control the flow across these things. And we're going, you know, we're not land-based anymore. We're going to be in a completely different kind of sphere of uh, a way in which we, um, again, exchange and trade information and uh, create value. So um, I think that there will be this like very different kind of global structure. And then I do think that there will be a, a real pull to resilience. You know, if you look in nature around resilience, it is these small things, but they're interdependent. You know, they're all... Uh, there's, we always talk about now the secret life of trees, but as we learn more and more about how trees and the forest work, it's really extraordinary to understand the role that mushrooms play and the role that fungus plays and the role that the oak plays and the role that the so-and-so plays and how the trees talk to one another and they coordinate and sort of shift even over time, like their location, which seems impossible because we can't see it, but there is something that's happening that keeps them thriving and alive. And there is life and death, right? There are life cycles to things. Uh, so we're not like trying to live infinitely forever, but there is a way in which they uh, have learned the lessons of evolution through millions of years and billions of years that we're now starting to um, better understand in terms of how we can coordinate with one another. So there's another, there's an evolutionary biologist. So the other thing gives me hope is that we're learning that kind of thing. Uh, there's an evolutionary biologist named Tamsin Woolley Barker, who does a lot of work in this area. She's got a book called Teeming, T-E-E-M-I-N-G, which would actually be really interesting for this podcast to listen to. Um, but she has all the study, you know, the insect world or the you know, animal kingdom. And really there's so many lessons about how they coordinate that are very, very different than the way we do things uh, that I think actually right. point to greater resilience and greater thriving for everyone. Right, right. Well, and it's that, that sort of fractal idea that we, we somehow mirror nature in the way that we organize ourselves. Like, cause a cell has its own energy center, right? It's only ability right. to create energy. Right. And then it's, it, but it's in the context of an organism, it's, it's interconnected with other cells. And it relies on them to to perform certain functions in in order for it to thrive within an ecosystem. Um, so. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Is I do think it's small that connects to big. So whatever the, I think the scoping is just different. So rather than thinking about it all here, I think it's about here and here, which creates a a whole different thing. And then when you think about growth and scaling, uh, Nora Bateson's another really extraordinary woman to talk to. Uh, has this whole concept around warm data. Yeah. But the idea that you are uh, not just taking something and growing and growing and growing and growing it, it's that you're growing all these cells. Right, to allow it to grow and be stronger. 
that you still get growth, but it looks very different than just blowing something bigger and bigger and bigger, which is how our organizations are currently structured. Right, exactly. And then that's that's who gets on the front. Well, in some ways, that's what, who we celebrate in life, right? It's the figures who are the leaders of these organizations that have scale, right? You know, the scale and scale and scale. Yeah. But you almost see some echoes of what you're describing within these current organizations that might look like from the outside, like they're monoliths. But actually, when you look under Amazon or under Google, now called Alphabet, you actually see some, seems to me like some echo of what you're describing because they've they've broken into separate business units, right? And even Facebook, right? They kept, they've kept relatively loosely coupled within that bigger organization, right? Yeah, I, get, I haven't structured, I haven't um, spent enough time sort of deconstructing those guys. I think that that's still, um, uh, I don't know that that's exactly where we're going. I think that if, if you um, read anything about reimagining organizations, uh, the book, uh, Frederick. Lynn. Yeah, with the, the, the right. yes, exactly. The teal yeah. organization. Yeah. Right, right. And you start thinking about like the nurses, uh, um, confederation or group that he always That's talks so, about in the yeah. Netherlands, right? Yeah. J- uh, yes. Joss is, is booked to come on this podcast next week. Yeah. Okay, good. Because uh, I think that that's yeah. actually more the model, which is that it goes back to your point about individual, like smaller units that are connected to a bigger whole that are able then to be able, again, and the reason he went that direction and for your listeners or our viewers who are watching, it was really this idea of reinventing the nursing profession and instead of putting everybody inside big, huge healthcare systems and telling them what they were going to do and telling them what their assignments were every day. Um, he re- rearranged it so that the group would work in a small community of, I don't know if it was like you know, five to 10 to 15 nurses that right. would have a certain um, you know, geography or a certain set of clients that they were working with. And together every day, they were kind of set through about, you know, we're going to spend two hours with this person and 10 minutes with that person because this person needs this and that person needs that. And they would just figure out a way to do it in a way that was much more, again, humane, much more responsive, certainly much more efficient, way more productive. I mean, that's the part that's so interesting. When we start to actually deconstruct this industrial model of having to organize it this way, and we can actually go to one that's much more responsive, we actually find there's more productivity. Becomes that and more engagement. People are so much more excited about their work because they feel as though they now can actually make decisions in real time that make sense to them. Yeah. Right. So I think those again the kinds of thinking and ideas that I champion and get excited about because I think they restore um, a set of balance, a set of humanity, a set of um, uh, just a different way of, of approaching things that I think will work much much better for right, all of us. Right. Yes, yes. And you, the leader you know, becomes that, a mindset. Like, I feel like unless you can get to a mindset that makes it open to that, we keep resisting that. So what I'm trying to do with this book and this way of thinking is just get people prepared and open and build the case for why that world uh, will be the safer, better way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And what you've just just uh, described just reminds me of another guest we had on who's the author of the book, 400%, sorry, 500%. And that was the productivity gain they had in going even further than Birdsong. So, right, they went, they got down to their, their, their unit was not a team of five or six. It was an individual. Basically, the entire company is called Mapback Systems. It's based in the UK. Every single individual is a mini firm within a bigger firm and they're all interconnected to everybody else. And they've got no central, no centralized function right. whatsoever. It's all, you know, there's just a set of constraints that they work within. Uh, and, and they basically do, do business with each other. But that's fractal in the sense that, you know, it, it, it not only mirrors to some extent, you know, nature, but also just business or society at large, right? Because how does society at large work? It's firms interconnected with each other, independent, you know, within the dependencies working within a broader set of constraints, right? And he, so, it, so his, the way he sees it is his business is simply mirroring what uh, the way we organize ourselves at, at that larger scale. Yep. I think yeah. I think that's where it's headed. I mean, I think that that, that what we, we will find will be the more satisfying, more resilient, more productive, more just the, the, the way in which we want it all to work. That's why I talk a lot about this is about the mindset we need to build the future we want, right? How do we shift our way of thinking and let go of some of these approaches and structures and beliefs that we had? Like I talk a lot about risk um, and that I believe that so much of what we've built to keep us safe in the 20th century is now creating vulnerability. And so we have to learn to say, it's okay to let go of this and move to this, this is actually the safer way to go, right? So there's a story so, in the book about, you know, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, give, me, give me an example of that or illustrate that, yeah. Well, I was going to say like, uh, uh, well, like the, the, the examples of that are things like putting things in silos because we think it's more efficient and it somehow makes sure that, you know, nothing kind of kind of spills over into anything else. And what we're realizing is that that actually just makes everybody too disconnected from everyone. And in the world of artificial intelligence and data, we're going to need to be able to move much uh, more fluidly across business units and across 
um, communities inside an organization. And what we see is that there are actually tremendous uh, solutions we could build for the end customer, uh, but they're usually staggered. They usually get stopped because they've got these walls inside organizations that don't allow for us to happen. So that's just one basic one. Um, centralizing everything and putting bottlenecks in that way, not useful. Um, assuming that the person who has the most tenure is the person who should be making all the decisions. So whether that's the C-suite or that's the board, instead of pushing power down and recognizing that you empower people at the front lines who are actually experiencing what actually is happening at that moment, there's a tremendous amount of intelligence that can come from that. There's a tremendous amount of response that can come from that. There's an empowering them to be human in that and not just follow the guidebook and says, well, no, rule number 75 says we should do this. The fact is that this is the right thing to do. And so we build a culture for that. So I think there's all the things that, again, that we built in place because we thought they kept us safe. Um, and now they are creating vulnerability and they're not the way to do things. So, um, and then the one sort of example that we could talk about in the book is monoculture and this desire for, again, for efficiency. So the banana um, is under tremendous threat through a fungus because we keep deciding that in order to make you know, bananas able to grow effectively and be able to ship them around the world uh, with the you know, least amount of cost and the same size container and the same size whatever, is that we all have decided that there's only one kind of, it's called a Cavendish banana, uh, that should be grown and shipped around the world. And as it starts to create, you know, get a fungus, it's, it goes away. And the, the crazy part about this is that there was a lesson learned I don't know, 40 or 50 years ago with a different variety of banana in which the exact same thing happened. And instead of going, ooh, let's learn from that and create a greater set of, you know, variety around it. We're going to go straight to again. Let's just find the next one and do the exact same thing to the next one. Right. So imagine a world without bananas. That would be really sad. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what we're realizing is that building in these sort of mono ways is dangerous, but we thought it kept us safer. Right. 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 There's like a challenge, a whole bunch of that thing. And things like, I mean, this is also, we want to go back to human. One of the things we're learning in the technological world is that we're just, when we relate to each other, we have, again, a greater productivity, a greater sense of being able to throw out crazy ideas, right? So if you start a meeting with um, a story, right? A 30 second story, every person gets to tell a 30 second story. What you find is that there's so much greater, like actually business output, but most people think that that's a waste of time, right? Yeah. It's not efficient. Um, we did a, a, a three hour work session with a set of clients recently. And uh, out of 180 minutes, we spent five minutes. We allocated five minutes to do a connection exercise with the people that were in the room. It was super fast. Like we did it as literally as fast. We get 11 seconds per person is what we clock this thing to be. And the client actually looked at me because why do we need those five minutes? Because like, without those five minutes, I can't make the next 175 valuable. Right. I won't right, be able right, to get right. the contribution from all the people that we need in the room. I won't have built their trust. There will have been no vulnerability that was created. There's like that, that literally five minutes of just like connecting with one another around the most meaningful word, the word that was most meaningful to them. That was literally as fast as the exercise was. And people had to put on a sheet of paper, like the word yes, right. Or the word love or the word whatever. Um, bam, 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 bam. But it changed the whole course then of the conversation that we got to have over the next three hours. Right. But we yeah. think that those things are inefficient. We've been taught that that is, you know, a waste of time as opposed to the thing that actually, and there's so many stories in the book around why those kinds of human technologies actually create the thing that we want, but we don't recognize that. Yeah. Well, it's starting to value the connection. Yeah. But the connection between businesses, the connection between individuals, the connection between me and my body or me and my emotions, yeah. right? Yeah. So and us in the world, right? Where who we are yeah. inside the environments in which we are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And those are the things that we're starting to reclaim. So wake again, back to your point is about waking up to that and the recognition of that. And then wondering, it's being in a state of curiosity and wondering what if, because it's often we resist it if we don't understand it and we just shut it down and go, no, that will never happen. I have been told that will never happen so many times to things that now, you know, literally a, a president of a company or CEO of a company will never tweet Nancy. I wake up with what if, <laughs> you know? what if, uh, because then you're better prepared in a what if world, you can, you can sense, okay, well, if that were to happen, like we did an exercise with another client, we said, well, what if uh, you get taxed if you lay off a restaurant, you know, person in the back kitchen in order to, with a robot, replace them with a robot. So if I say, you know, there, I can take away the cook and put a, a burger flipping machine in because it's more efficient, I can you know, make this all day long then. Um, would there be a tax? And it was like, oh, that's crazy. And then we were seeing municipalities trying to figure that out. I don't think that that's the answer, but it, uh, it's better to be prepared. So in the eventuality that that happened, you'd have a, you know, a response to it right. one way or another. So I think playing the what if game is really important. 
Yeah, well, that's being in a state of wonder. But that requires yeah. vulnerability and that requires people to feel connected and safe with each other. We've had Amy Epperson on the show who talks about psychological safety, right? So Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The yeah. psychological safety piece, but also has a sense of agency that feels as though I, if I learn this, I could do something with this. Because I think part of the mm. reason that we also don't go into a state of wonder is that we think that then, okay, well, if I learn this, I, I, what will I do with that? Like, I, I'm not, I, I, I have, I don't have the capability to do it. I don't have the agency to do it. I don't have the understanding. And so I think what part of what we're saying is just be curious. And then you can figure out, okay, well, then you want to go learn something more about it. Or the other thing that people have uh, pushed back when I say wonder versus resist, is I'm also not saying you say yes to everything, right? Uh, there's plenty of technologies that are not in my home yet. I don't have an Alexa. You know, we tried it in my house years ago. I gave it to all my teenagers. And within two weeks, everyone was like, no, thank you. And like, gave them all back to me. Uh, but we tried it, right? We were curious about it. We were wondered about it. So I do think that you wonder can also give you permission to say no, but at least you understand it's an informed no or not yet. Right. As opposed yeah, to as opposed like, that sort of stance, which is like just, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, it's yeah. more like eyes open. No, no. Uh, let's no, at least you know, give it a shot. You know, yeah. uh, I, I bought an electric car because I was really curious about this. And I have become very uh, respectful of infrastructure and realizing how important infrastructure is with new technology. Right. So has it been the easiest thing? Not necessarily, but it, it was really good for me to see. Um, that we can't just keep advocating for you know a new application unless we can build the infrastructure around it that supports that application, right? right. Sometimes you go in and you just do something you kind of you learn more about it. So yeah, 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 and that's the only way to explore. And I suppose that that, that comes back to this le- learning and leading, learning and leading, right? It, you, you, yeah. But learning and leading means that you have to have a sense of self worth. So what we're really finding in so much of this work, if you want to get really down, is self awareness and self worth. That's like the, the smallest unit. We just talked about the smallest unit of business. The smallest unit, I think, of being human is being that sense of where you feel uh, safe being you and you yeah. like you and you know you. Because yeah. what we're finding is even in the biggest organizations, if I put you in an environment where you either have to learn something new that challenges you, you immediately think, oh, my gosh, I can't do this. So you think you're an imposter and that starts to create all kinds of other things yeah. or you want to hide the fact that you are afraid you're going to get called out. And so you you withhold information. You withhold you know, the ability to connect with other people. You start to get into more and more of a crouch sort of survival stance. Not useful in a world in which we're going to need each other to learn and to grow and to coordinate and to be able to try new things, right? Um, and so there's so many ways we're seeing that that becomes... Um, there's another person, uh, an executive at a big company that we did some work with that we've become friends. And he was in one of my sessions this past week and he sent me a great note back. He's doing a, a research study on difference makers, people who make an outsized difference in an organization without necessarily having the power to do that. Like who is right. it that can come in through this sort of side door and that somehow ch- ch- create all this change. And what he's finding is all kinds of things that mirror leadering. Actually, he sent me a note yesterday about how much it aligns. Uh, but that self-awareness ends up becoming one of the key things, self-awareness and passion, right? Self-awareness, ah, yes. John Hagen feeling like you know, but, but said, connected. That because the fact you do, you're not going to expose yourself to a learning situation where you might feel some anxious, or you may feel uncomfortable. You're not, you're not going to put yourself into a learning zone unless you've got the passion. Why take Yeah, why, unless you why, said, why because what, what he connected it to, and I really believe the same thing, this goes back to my compass. My compass is actually really clear. When I talk about moving with the compass and a North Star, it's about what does the future need and expect from you? right? From you, meaning you or the individual or the organization or the industry or even the nation. What does the future need and expect? And then what are you in a unique position to create and contribute to that? And it's that self-awareness of understanding that these are my, you know, my constellation of strengths and where the things are that, you know, I, I'm not ready to learn, or I don't think that that's where I should be putting my energy. And this is the network that I have that I can build it with, which is why connection becomes so important. So there's something that I have that's unique resources of equity and, and uh, um, curiosity, et cetera, that I get to go build something really unique. So again, when you know yourself well enough to know what that is and how you can deploy where you need to be in this world, there's another term that we coined years ago called cultural acupuncture. But the idea is if I do my thing here, Richard does his thing here, and Doug does his thing there, and Benita does her thing there, then eventually it radiates the change that we want. We don't all have to take on all of the responsibility, but I know what right. my piece is in it. And I get very yeah. excited about what my piece is in it. Yeah. Right. And that goes into a whole other conversation what the future of work will be, because I think there's a difference between the future of work and the future of working. And new work will be about being able to express our unique passions and curiosities in a way that's in a system that uh, looks potentially very different than the one that we've got now. That's the future. That's the future of work. Yeah. Well, that's the future. I was saying that working is about how we work. Like working is about will we have artificial, you know, will we have augmented reality in our offices or not? Will we? 
you know, be more gig work versus will we be more so? And so it's really more about the structure of the way in which we are currently coordinating things, the future of work as a, it's a bigger conversation, again, in this productivity revolution thing, when you imagine that a big percentage of the population will not be able to be reskilled in time and or there may not be the jobs available in time, but we still want to be able to express our unique thing. I think about, I've got seven roles, at least on the planet, two or three of which are paid. Right. right? Okay. So there's a lot that I contribute and there's a lot of value that I express that isn't paid. And so we yeah. would look like it a society in which we're able to um, make that value more visible and be able to uh, reward it in really different ways. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And that links back to passion, to learning. Yeah, and to, to run and contribute. Yeah. And, and well, yeah. and contribution, right? Because that in its, because I suppose that's in some ways a part of this is, the, is almost thinking about what contribution means. Because sometimes contribution is just with those experiments that's that exploring, that learning and, and, and sharing it with the network. Totally. And that's why I said, you know, the, the second question in the company is what are you unique position to create and contribute? Because sometimes it yeah. is that I really want to go build this thing. And sometimes it's just I have this, 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 I don't know, uh, learning that I want to share. It is uh, an idea. It is a sense of uh, wanting to take care of, build a system. Like I think there's a whole other way of being able to do philanthropy that would be so much more effective in crises than the sort of system that we've got now. So people are filled with ideas of things that they think could make the planet work better. You know, one of the things I think that um, we talked to in terms of um, uh, empowering people is that when, my, when uh, Satya Nadella became CEO of Microsoft, he uh, instituted a hackathon very early on in which the idea was that everyone in the organization was supposed to participate. It wasn't just the innovation team or the technology team. It was like if you were in accounting, if you were in HR, if you were in you know, building services, whatever it was. But the point was over three days, you could come up with a solution to something that was nagging you. And yeah. you could pro- you know, just put, put a prototype together, figure out a way that you could pilot it a little bit, pull a team together. And what people got from that were a sense of empowerment, right? And innovation doesn't just hang out over here, uh, but that every system could be improved if we just brought a little bit of creativity and imagination and shared mm-hmm. thinking to it. And that's the kind of thinking that we want, right? Is that everyone feels as though every day, oh, wait, we say we can make this better over here, or we could shift this over here. This is no longer working over there. Or, oh my gosh, there's a huge need over here that hasn't been filled yet, right? Looking yeah. for those and feeling that, again, that sense of agency that you can bring a solution to it. Yeah. No, and a network to it. You don't have to do it by yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so investing in that, building that network is important. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. What's interesting here is that word empowerment. So the Julian Wilson, the guy I mentioned who wrote the book 500%, who got this, he's economic down to individuals. He, he, for him, he doesn't relate to the word empowerment anymore because that suggests a, a central agency empowering. Right, right, right. like, that doesn't even mean anything to me anymore. I know. Just, I, know. I thought that was, that was interesting, right? It's interesting. So there's another um, organization that we've helped. Um, Bring the you know, partnerism.org. So it's another thing that gives me hope is this work of Rianne Eisler, who has been for decades advocating for a really different way of looking at economic and social structures that are uh, make, again, a lot of value that's currently been created in, that's invisible, visible. And we think that, again, measures like GDP are outdated. And she's working on something called the Social Wealth Index that would make um, a much more complete accounting of what's happening in economic structures. But we talk about moving from power over to power with. And she will talk a lot about empower too, that people feel this sense of being able to uh, do something. And then to your point, they weren't given permission by someone. It wasn't an empowered that they, they let me go do this. I just am feeling that within the system, I am um, enabled. I don't know what that word is uh, to go do it. Yeah, well, I like your so, word agency or sovereignty, right? Yeah. These are ideas. They're, they're not, they're sort of self-referential in a sense, right? You know, they're, they're, you know, I am an agent. I am sovereign, right? I don't. I don't, uh, uh, nobody bequeaths me that in a sense. Did you read the story in the book about the women at the airport? No, no, no. Sure. So there's a beginning of the thing in the book that talks a lot about, again, why the playbook is dead and why we need to show up differently. And it tells the story a little bit about Amazon's headquarters and how cool that is and how different it looks, the spheres and how it challenges all the assumptions about being bold and visionary and all that. So that's one thing, right? The future needs us to be bold and visionary and to question everything. The second, though, tells a story about the women at the airport, which I think is exactly what you're, the best example I can give of what that looks like which is that there's one day there's a young woman who is pregnant and she's traveling with her toddler son and no other help. And the son is just having a really rough afternoon. He's running around the airport screaming and crying and she's doing everything she can to kind of, you know, constrain the situation, but she can't. And at some point she just sits down and everyone and starts to weep. And suddenly six women that don't know each other step out from wherever it is they're sitting or standing and they just come over and they encircle the mom and they get down low and one starts singing Itsy Bitsy Spider. One pulls out a snack. One helps mom with a sippy cup. One does another thing. And the whole situation sort of uh, calms down. The little boy gets curious. It's in the mother's lap. They take a deep breath. They're able to get on the plane calmly. 
And when it's over, they just disband. And no one gave them permission. There was no rule book. There was no hierarchy about like who's going to be the lead mom that's going to tell all the other moms what to go do. They each just saw a situation very empathetically, responded to it, felt that they had the agency that they could actually add some value to the situation, coordinated completely organically. And when it was done, just disbanded. Right. right? Like that to me is such a beautiful example of just showing up, being human, being caring, being effective. And, um, and making, you know, the, the whole thing work better and not leaving somebody alone to try and solve that all by herself. She, at that moment, needed the support. Um, yeah. So I love that. Those are the two examples we talked about. It's about being bold and visionary and, and challenging. And it is about being caring and human and responsive and, and interconnected. Those are what the future yeah. needs and expects. Needs and expects. Yeah, that's that. That that's the vision. That 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 resonates with me, right? And it reminds me what you just about that story of the airport is. I wrote a blog article a while back about you know, the future of Margaret is is how you organize your vacations with your friends right now. Like I, I talk about when you know me and my friends go on a ski trip. It's not like somebody's the boss of the of the ski trip. It's like who's going to do the flights, and then somebody's like, okay, I'll 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 organize the chalet, and then like you get there, and somebody's like. Oh, Everyone's like, okay, I'll, I'll get the text, right? It just emerges, right? Like there is no, we don't, we don't have an organizational chart. We don't have a boss. We, we just, it just happens just like you described with those women and the, the situation. I think that, that to me is like the vision of humane sort of management and leadership. And how it is, but it great. also, the, the, so the next level to that is, and within that group, people have different tendencies. So somebody is like, I'll get the chalet and I'll get the ticket, but somebody else, I'll just make the dinner because I'm really right. good at cooking. Right. Yeah. And somebody's like, well, I'll make sure that we've got the hotel nights right the, the right way. Cause we did a family trip and I tried to get everybody to be like on the same, like, like distribute the tasks across, you know, my three children. And cause they're all old enough now that they should be, you know, part of this. And what we just realized is one is really good at the logistics. One was really good at figuring out the adventures and one was really good at figuring out the culture and wanted to start speaking the language. And every time we got in a cab, we made him do the talking, right? When we were in Japan. Right. Um, but so you recognize that we have different capacities. And we need to make those more visible so that we're not trying to put everybody into the same role inside the same box, right? But yeah. you need all of those capacities in order to have a successful trip or a successful exactly. experience or successful organization. And so I think that we're just learning more about the fact that we each have um, something really unique to bring to the party. Yeah. And, and we also, also, I think there's just a natural way in which, in which groups deal with, the, with tensions, right? Like, Right. You kind of know if you're on a trip like that and somebody hasn't pulled their weight or they haven't, you know, put enough money in the pot and you have a way of like shaming them or encouraging, you know, you just, you just figure out how, how to deal with that situation. And, uh, we've had a couple of people now who've, who've talked about these, you know, teal style organizations or yeah. holocratic organizations. And always the question is, well, how do you fire somebody or how do you deal with somebody who's not putting their, and they're like, well, and that this is talking to the CEOs. Well, it just kind of, it just works out, right? You know, the right. team just deal with it, right? There's, there's always a way. There's a, you there, always find a way. Uh, but again, it has to do with trust and it has to yeah. do with, um, uh, again, people feeling like they're, that we are, we, the, we are out of a shared values, but there's something that we all understand that what we're working toward and that this is what right looks like and this is what right doesn't look like. Because sometimes that can be done really inhumanely too. That can be done in a way that really is, mm. uh, that is hard on people. And, um, so I think that we're, we need to get better at that. I'm not sure that we're really super good always at doing that. But if you think about it, one of the, the best examples for me was when I, I, mean, I was one of the first TEDx organizers in the world. I was technically the first licensee, one of the very first to, to put a TEDx organization together. And so um, that was a really scary thing, right? You're distributing, you're basically letting the whole world kind of have some of the TED DNA through TEDx. And, and, and there was a certain number of guidelines, like you have to you know, be, uh, apply to be a licensee, but at some point it goes out into the wild. And what they found was that actually the community itself helped police it. Right. If there was somebody who was doing a really weird TEDx that had like to do with you know, whatever the occult and they didn't feel like that was TEDx like, there was a way of being able to help, you know, either mentor that person or, or counsel that person. Like there was just somehow the system kind of self healed, if you will. Self healed. So, there you go. That's a great term. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, because it recognized kind of like that we all wanted to preserve the integrity of the experience. Like it was important for the whole system that, you know, the, the people who were sort of going a bit rogue could understand why we didn't want them to, but also the people who are going, this is where you're going to look at nature. The people who are exploring the edge are actually important sometimes because they're looking at new terrain. And we need to actually also say, oh, is that actually a place that we should be potentially migrating to or not? And so I think that we're going to become a bit more, um, I think, respectful too of the folks who do sort of challenge 
the way in which we are currently doing things. So the idea is not to put everything back into homeostasis or into homogenation, right? It is to learn that um, we're again, just like when we were talking about planning a trip, um, that outlier thinker or that outlier idea has a way of being able to expand to new territory in a way that doesn't threaten the organization that gives us a portal into something new. And so uh, I think we're just going to learn a lot more about how to do this without a rule book. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And what you've just described there, letting people go out to the, like creating new knowledge. You know, this is something that, that John Hagel, you know, came on the show, talked about another thinker that, uh, you know, the, the future isn't in le- like learning from others necessarily. It's, it's creating new knowledge, knowledge on the edge, like on the fringes right. of your organization or, or wherever it might be. And, and actually, that's just as important as sort of learning something that's already about something. Yeah, and again, I think that we have an outdated vocabulary for that stuff. So, you know, he and I just, uh, he was part of my leadering series. He and I are, are, are friends. Oh, there you go. And, great. Um, and Stephen Kotler. I mean, some great people. We've had such lovely conversations mm. with people. But um, but John and I were just having this conversation multiple times uh, the last couple of weeks. And, you know, we get tripped up sometimes on our vocabulary because we think learning looks like this you know, which is very different than skill building, which is what, you know, we often think of learning is like you're learning somebody else's stuff versus you're learning through, to his point, experimentation and, and sort of feeling your way through it, which I just think we need better words for it. Or like he'll talk, we had, we got this big tumble between story and narrative. <laughs> we keep like you know, running over each other in terms of like, what do we mean by this versus what do we mean by that? So again, these are just part of the skills of becoming more um, facile in this new world. You know, one of the biggest learnings I've had in this past week is we um, also talked to Stephen Kotler about organizations and, and performance, um, individual performance and organizational performance and this role of frustration. Uh, he has a new book called The Art of the Impossible. And I don't know if you've interviewed him yet, but if not, he's perfect right. for this conversation. Right. Um, but he talks about long-term, uh, long-haul creativity. And there are moments that you just run into this wall where you just feel really, really frustrated and you feel like, you know, um, like you want to cry, you, you, know, you think you're doomed. Um, in the creative world, we're really comfortable with that process. You can just realize it's part of the process and you kind of like take a deep breath and you know, like retrench for a second and then you come back in. In the business world, we're not at all prepared for those moments of frustration and learning. It's really, it's a learning process it's about hitting the edge of your capacity and then having to kind of break through into the next level of it. And you hit this place where you have to kind of like disintegrate to reintegrate. Really an uncomfortable feeling, not super fun. Right. No. But how do you actually learn to do that in a way that you recognize that that's okay? It's part of the process that you're witnessing somebody else do that and you help them through that, you know? And so these are yeah. all the kinds of um, nuances and, and distinctions that we get to uh, dive into now as humans, which I think is really fun. Yeah. 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 And that disintegration is important. I know it speaks to your term earlier, but that's healing. I mean, you're about the healing organization. I think that's a big part of it. Because if, if you throw yourself out on the edge, you are going to have some painful experiences. And it's like you need to heal. Um, yeah. As you expose yourself to new environments, you're going to bring up stuff that you may need to, you know, from your past, you may need to heal from, but then the team and the people around you need to. So I think yeah. another one of those sort of fractal ideas that. But even that healing word is like, you know, like it has multiple dimensions to that healing word mm. because sometimes it's a processing piece of it. Sometimes it's a fixing piece of it. Sometimes it's mm. a, uh, a uh, you know, not consoling, yeah. but like a, you, know, you put a bandaid on it kind of a thing. Like yeah. you have to actually like give Palliative, it space yeah. and time. Like there's mm. all kinds of ways in which we have to like hold space. So these are all, again, um, areas that you can write entire books around, you can do it. So the book on my book, I'm realizing is such a survey across all these ideas. We kind of dip into each of them very quickly, yeah. as opposed to any one of those things or things we could develop much more around. And I'm trying to think what would it, what the, the next thing I, I might someday write about me. And I think it is about this ability to be uh, building a society that just has a very different shape of this. And with all these things, these distinctions that we're describing now, we become much more um, aware of and able to name and, and to hold. Uh, with confidence. I just want people to feel less scared. I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing we've got right now is everyone, and that's what you know, John is working on his new book, is The Journey Beyond Fear. Um, so this idea, again, of self-awareness, trusting yourself, knowing yourself, having compassion for yourself. Some stuff is going to quote-unquote heal, and some of it is just who you are. And that's great. Yeah. Right? And making peace with that, and being able to walk into the world with that, being able to show that, being able to be that. And that when you have a moment of frustration, know that that does not somehow call you out to be a failed human. <laughs> it actually means that you're pushing the boundaries of being human, which is great. And we learn to, you know, get excited about that. Um, we always talk about that people are afraid to change, but people do like to grow. And so if we can reframe change to growth, I think growth is a really good thing. Not necessarily quarterly no. growth, but human growth. Right. Okay. Again, too many words, like same word, apply too many ways. Right, right, right. 
Um, okay, so we've had it with God. It's such an expansive conversation, as you say, and the, and the book dips into so many sort of domains, which, which I love. I, I wonder if um, we could just sort of bring it down. We've talked about a few like just simple practices that people could maybe take away. You know, maybe, you know, they're working in a very um, non-teal organization, let's say, you know, quite, perhaps quite a hierarchical space that doesn't feel like exhibiting a lot of things we've just talked about. Like you talked about like change your meetings up a bit, maybe a little story at the start of me. Are there any like just like super practical things that people could do either in the context of their like dynamic at work or for themselves personally that would sort of start moving them in the direction you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I think that again, what's so interesting, especially when we want to talk about the big, huge change, uh, big, huge growth opportunities. I think it's really micro actions. It's tiny little things. It's actually the way that you even use language. You know, we were again doing this work with this, this group a few weeks ago and every fr- sentence was phrased through fear and risk as opposed to what if or possibility, or even like when you finish, you know, an assignment, you want to do a critique around it. What are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? What went right and what went wrong? And I'm like, rather than trying to make us critics, how about if we make ourselves builders? So what sparked us and what is a hurdle that we need to find a solution for? Right. But the minute I frame it that way, I'm framing it through the lens of how can I build a solution for it as opposed to what went wrong and what is failure? Like, because we need to get out of this mindset of um, looking for failure and calling it out and shaming people for it. So the things that don't go exactly the way that we planned, to John's point around learning, um, become opportunities for us to be able to learn something else or to figure out another solution around. So I think what I'm just trying to help people do is just like like micro look at their language, look at their tiny little processes. As part of me, so just sit in a meeting with each people and go, nope, a little bit more here, nope, a little bit more there. Right. Like when someone says, how do we master something? Like you're not going to be able to master anything anymore. What can I learn that I can feel confident enough to act is really what we're trying to get to right now. So just, I'm, I'm doing a lot of like micro, like language slash posture coaching or looking for, the other thing is look for incongruencies. We often find organizations say that we want to incentivize, that we love people to be curious, but we incentivize them not to be curious. Right. Or we want to be collaborative and we incentivize them not to be collaborative. One of my favorite stories is a, a company is like, ah, oh, we love we, we, collaboration. We're really into that. Like when we have like onboarding um, processes, we do a lot of competitive games. And I'm like, hold up. Right. How can like you like literally in your onboarding process, you're teaching people that there's a winner and that one group is more superior to the other. But you're telling me that you really want people to be collaborative when they get into their jobs. That's really confusing. Right. Yeah. So how, do, yeah. again, do we look at our systems and say, what do we think is really important? And are we building all the systemic congruencies around that that actually make that possible? Because if we're not, we put people in the crosshairs and they just shut down. Mm-hmm. So I just am trying to look for little things like that, that I feel like, um, you know, end up having huge impact in an organization or in a person's ability to feel that they can show up and uh, feel that they can do their best work. So I think work on yourself, right? I do think that spending time, uh, whether it's the Enneagram or any of these wonderful tools that help us better understand who oh, well, we the are. In, Enneagram. You don't have the Enneagram in your world yet? Ah, I just turned so, it on. Say, say, say the word slowly. I can't. Oh, maybe it's, it's like, Enneagram. E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. E-N-N-E-A. Enneagram. Okay. I've heard, I think I have heard the word before. Yeah. I'm sure you have because it's a really, yeah. it's a big, big tool now in the world of, of again, personal development and understanding ourselves better. There's a lot of people who are doing like different versions of it um, that are sometimes, again, more blown out, not blown out. But what I love about it is it's like a spiritual tool that helps us. It doesn't have nine different sort of uh, archetypes of who it is that we can be. But one of the things I love it is dynamic. So when you're under stress, you take the sort of the worst of this thing. And when you feel like you're really optimal, you get the best of this one. And most of us live kind of in this place in between, which means that we don't judge ourselves so harshly as being always the worst of us. Right? Okay. Yes, there are moments that we show up where we are not the person that we love the most, right? But that's only a piece of it. It's because there's all these other constra- you know, things that are happening around us and that we actually are part of a system. And then we can actually look at that system much more objectively now and, and with a more perspective Then we can actually move ourselves out of it as opposed to feeling like we're trapped in it. So this, these tools that we can use to start to understand ourselves better and how we react in situations, I think will allow us to just be able to move into unknown terrain less fearfully and allow us to trust each other more and become um, more collaborative with one another as we navigate together. That's yeah. my biggest wish that people just feel like they uh, are well held. The way I, I'll just sum this up with this and then let you go, which is that I have a really strong belief that we all deserve to be better held by each other, which is more respectfully and more compassionately by the systems we design. So we make sure that they are congruent and by the technologies that we advance, that they are mm. humane. Yeah. Yeah. Each other, right. the systems we design and the technologies we advance. Yeah. Right. 
that's the key. Well, that, we can just knock important. that out. Yeah. Then, you know, the world, the world is but that's already sparked a thought like, you know, what, what are they telling, what are the technologies I give my, my attention to and, you know, yeah, give my yeah. data to, right? There's give your data to. And at some point, there'll be one other thing about how I get rewarded for doing that. But right now we're not. So, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of it. So, uh, it's been fun. Thank you for letting me have this no. expansive conversation with you. I'm sorry if, our, if your listeners or viewers have whiplash right now. I promise the book holds it together a bit better. We just have no, to it do does, it does, these different it things. Does, it does. And uh, yeah, yeah, you can. And, it, and it's fun to connect the all these other people. Place, yeah. Well, and I think that what I love about your podcast is that you're connecting the dots and you're weaving a really beautiful human story across all these different things. So all of these pieces are part of it. This goes back to the cultural acupuncture idea, the humanistic acupuncture that Amy's work connects to John's work, connects to my work, connects to all these other pieces. And so mm. what you're seeing is this really, um, you know, beautiful map about, uh, I don't know a map, but a, a beautiful constellation of uh, this way of thinking that I. Well, I know you mentioned, you mentioned Paul Poman in the book and his, uh, his wife mm-hmm. was on the podcast and she's, she's got this, this, you know, she introduced me to this idea of imaginal cells, right? You know, the, these, these cells within um, a chrysalis, you know, chrysalis that, you know, when a caterpillar turns into um, a butterfly, that there's the imaginal cells, right? You know, that the, these are the ones that oh, first start to yeah, shift yeah. in the, in the metamorphosis. And, they, and, you know, it's believed that they somehow sort of communicate with each other. And, and these are the ones that ultimately, you know, start to form the emergent butterfly, right? And, it's, it's a, and it, I, I sometimes think of it like that, that there's this kind of constellation out there, if I'm not being too grandiose when I apply this to myself, of, of imaginal cells that are kind of all bubbling around a similar yes. set of themes, uh, connecting with each other on yes. things like this podcast. Um, but But collectively, if you were to sort of see that map, you would, you would, would sense this, this this sort of emerging shift, yeah. Exactly, and that's the thing. I think that right now it is still so nascent. I was talking about if you were at the front end of the Renaissance, would you have known in fourteen whatever that all this thing was stuff was happening, that it was going to create this giant shift, right? That what was happening in art, what was happening in politics, what was happening in science, what was happening in uh, the you know, economic structures, were all going to somehow you know uh, converge to create this whole new way of being human. Uh, I don't know that they recognize it yet. Here, I do think we actually do recognize that we are right on the precipice of something that uh, could go many different directions. There's also a doomsday scenario if you want to go there. Uh, but I think that we have, uh, I have a lot more faith in humanity and in each other that I don't think we'll let it go there. And I do think, again, there's a, so again, it goes back to beliefs. I think beliefs are really important. Examining your beliefs. I believe that there's a dance between dark and light and that when there's dark that happens, there's light that rises to um, to either balance it or to, you know, contain it. And so I don't get so scared about dark. I think it's part of the mechanism. And mm-hmm. I think that we should be really prepared for the fact that incumbent industries and incumbent leaders will not like the shift that we're heading into. And so there's going to be resistance there. And that should not be so surprising to people. Right. We get so freaked out by that. I'm like, that is part of the system at work. And so it's okay, right? We don't yeah. have to become, you know, uh, enrolled in that. Uh, we can let it sure, burn and, there's, out. and there's a great deal, you know, and there's a lot of people who who would have strong dependencies on that system. And if you pull the rug out too quickly, right. that may not be humane in itself. So exactly, and that's why I talk yeah. a lot about being able to create the scaffolding to mm. the places that we're headed. And then, my, I guess, my only real fear is that it's going to happen faster than people are prepared for, and it's going to create such a dis, there's so much torque in the system. If we were better prepared and we could open our eyes to the wonder of it, we would be building much better paths to it, and it would create less pain. If we continue to resist it, it will create more pain. And that's yeah. scary to me because I think there's a way to, to um, avoid it. And mm. um, I'm worried that we will not choose to do that in many cases. So um, uh, that will be painful to watch. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think inevitably there'll be some pain and suffering as you sort of transition from one story. Yeah. For sure there's the some, other, but, but I mean, we can, we can but reduce there's, it. there's ways to, yeah, to deal with it, reduce it. And to soften it and to use it and again, because someone asked me once, actually, I spoke to a group of military cadets um, and one young man asked me this beautiful question is, how do I feel about suffering? What is the role of suffering? Because they're taught in a military school that they have to really put themselves through pain in order to be able to have rebirthed as this, you know, extraordinary soldier. And I thought, gosh, you know, it's a really interesting question. And I guess I said on an individual level, I do think suffering, uh, just like we talked about with frustration, is the key to growth. I think that we're put in difficult situations and we, how we navigate our way out of them tells us a lot about who we are and increases our own resilience and sense of agency and compassion and all these things. I don't think we should live such a perfect life that we'd never run into a single hurdle. 
Uh, but on a systemic societal level, I do not think that we should be engineering for suffering. I think we should be doing everything we can to, to relieve it. So uh, whether that is wars and refugees, and there's a group that I support called Preemptive Love that's so much about trying to figure that systemic problem out, uh, or whether it is climate stability. So we ensure that people don't have to migrate from their homes in the global south to someplace that isn't you know, either on fire or flooded. Um, I think there are things that we can do to reduce suffering. And that's mm. basically at the end of the day what I, I'm, I'm doing my bit to try and do. Well, bravo. And I, I'm <laughs> sure this uh, book is a, is a contribution to that. So uh, It's yeah, a piece of it. It's a piece yeah. of it. So at least it helps um, the conversation to your point. Let's just have this kind of dialogue. So Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And uh, and fem, we, we, we didn't really go there too much today, but uh, Fem Futurist as well is obviously part of this, this mix. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want inspiration, out. just go listen to those conversations. We've had about 16 yeah. or 17 so far. We're continuing. I, I'm not as prolific as you are. It takes so much work. Uh, but we'll continue to build out that and have more um, variety. We've got people from Africa. We've got people from Europe. We've got people um, from around the world that are included in it. But these women have such an extraordinary um, shared point of view. Like they're all individuals. None of them know each other. Um, but when you have these conversations over and over again, we get to the same place you do, that there's a real belief in the um, putting humans at the center. What does it mean to build a future that does that? So whether one is working in governance or one is working around curiosity inside an organization or one is working around building technical skills and students in Africa, like everyone's got their own kind of place that they're playing, but there's a really interesting shared core that we're finding throughout these conversations that I find super inspiring. So I do encourage people to go and check out these women, uh, check out this thinking and recognize and, and think about the stories that we tell other people. They're not only men that are building the future or have built it in the past. Uh, there's a much bigger variety of contribution that has been made that hasn't always been given credit. So right. be careful about the stories that we tell. Yeah. Okay. Nancy, thanks again. It's been wonderful. Uh, we'll put links to the book and to Femme Futurists. Um, yeah. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. And, uh, and thanks for um, inviting me to be part of this. I really, really appreciate these conversations. And I'll have to listen more now to the rest of the podcast. I'm really curious about uh, some of these other folks that you've had on. So thanks for expanding my horizons as well. Thank you. All right. Thanks. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.